celebrating Saul's 90th birthday, that, Lord, we would rejoice in your kindness and your goodness to us. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we jump into this text, Jesus is in the middle of his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, We started this all the way back in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. He begins making that final journey south from from Galilee to Jerusalem. And Luke really slows down the storyline here. He's been moving very quickly, and now we sort of come to sort of this blow-by-blow account as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, makes his way to the cross. In Luke's gospel, Jerusalem is almost sort of magnetic pull. Whenever Jerusalem gets mentioned, it's shorthand for everything that's going to happen at Jerusalem. The fulfillment of all the promises, the fulfillment of all of the, the, the plan of God for Jesus to die and to be redeemed, or to, to redeem mankind from their sin. And as he's journeying, verse 20, journeying, verse 22 says he's teaching and, and preaching as he goes. And probably by this point, he's in the, the Transjordan area, which is known as Perea. He hangs out there for a few months. He actually makes a few trips to Jerusalem for Hanukkah, for example. We read about that in, in John's Gospel and comes back out again. And this is all going to lead up to the, the triumphal entry when he comes in on that Palm Sunday, the, the week before Easter, coming into that, that Passion Week. So we're moving closer and closer to the, the crux of the book. Uh, by, the word, by the way, that word crux comes from the, the word uh, crucifixion, right? The, 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 the climax, the, the point where this is all going to happen, all going to come to a head. And as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, his calls for repentance, his demands for people to come over to his side, the, the, the demands for clear allegiances become stronger and they become more repeated as he continues. And we saw in Luke chapter 12 just these repeated warnings against hypocrisy, against fakeness, against just sort of being a bandwagon follower of Jesus, right? We know, we know about bandwagon followers, you know, here in Alabama. They're like, oh, Alabama's winning. We're out roll tide. And then when they're losing, you know, Jesus does not want bandwagon followers, right? He wants committed disciples. And so Luke 13 opened with this call to repentance. Unless you repent, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, this is like a, like a tree that needs to bear fruit, and there's patience on God's part to, to bring that fruit about. But if there is no fruit, if there is no change, if there is no repentance, the tree is going to be cut down. And then and last time we saw Jesus healing a woman in the synagogue, and the kingdom of God breaking in in such a small way, it's like a mustard seed. It seems so insignificant compared to the, the scope of the, the, the world's problem, but in the end, the kingdom wins. Verse 22 now begins a new sort of subsection in the journey to Jerusalem. Every time the journey gets mentioned, it's sort of Luke's signposting saying, okay, we're beginning a new chunk here of the narrative. So we had the first chunk began in chapter 9, verse 51. Now a new chunk is beginning in this section of moving towards the cross. And what Jesus is saying very clearly in verse 24, and this is the main point, is strive to enter into the straight gate. Make every effort to enter the kingdom, to be sure of your salvation. Just pass through that narrow door. Now the question is, are there a few who are saved, or is it a whole bunch? I think we sort of, you know, we get what Jesus says, but we sort of have this sneaking suspicion that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are going to be saved. According to the Pew Research Center, 49% of the residents of Alabama, our state that we all live in, Identify as evangelical Protestants. That is, they identify as born-again Christians. That's a really high number. That's the third highest number 
uh, in the, the 50 states. It's tied second place, I think, with Kentucky. 82% of people in the state of Alabama are absolutely certain that God exists. So they ask, about, you know, yes, I believe absolutely that God exists. Most people in our state on a given Sunday attend church. Most pray on a regular basis. Most think that they are on their way to heaven. Most have heard the gospel. Most believe that the Bible says things that are true. And let me say, there are, there are some great benefits to living in a society that, that in some semblance upholds Christian values and you know, that, that values these sort of things. It's a whole lot easier to start conversations with people about the gospel where they're like, oh, yeah, I believe in God, and hey, let's talk about that. Let's have conversations. But here's the danger. The danger in living in a state like Alabama, living in a very, very church city like Mobile, Alabama. By the way, how many of you passed at least, at least one other church on your way to church this morning? Uh, I, I, I even counted. There's probably a half dozen that I would pass. There's a lot of churches in Mobile, Alabama, and a lot of churches that are preaching the gospel this morning. We know we're not the only one. We're not pretending that we're the only one. But if what Jesus is saying here is true, then there's a startling possibility, even a startling probability that a large number of those people who claim to be Christians are not actually Christians. The large number of those people who say they believe in God do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. While many claim to be Christians, few, I fear, actually are pursuing holiness and fighting sin and bearing fruit in their lives. While many claim to believe in Jesus, few, I fear, are producing fruits worthy of repentance. You see, in a, in a place like we live in, it is very, very easy to presume that you are a Christian simply because you attend church. By the way, you're attending church on Memorial Day weekend. Right? We're seeing like open space in here. A lot of people travel and doing things. Nothing wrong with that. But man, you're here on Memorial Day weekend. It's easy to think, man, I'm a Christian because I go to church. Or I'm a Christian because I've been baptized. I, I run into that where I say, hey, so if you were to die today, you know, sure go to heaven. How do you know? Well, I was baptized when I was eight years old or three years old in, in some Baptist church somewhere. Or I know I'm saved because I prayed a, a sinner's prayer. Or I volunteer in ministries. Or I oppose abortion and I vote pro-life. Or I've tried to live a decent moral life and take care of my family. Or I'm acquainted with the basic teachings of Christianity. Those are common answers that we will get in our culture where we live here in Alabama that is very churched. Here's the danger of cultural Christianity, is it can conceal people's desperate need for Christ with just a thin veneer. It conceals the need for Christ like a coat of paint on a rusty car. Oh, it's rusty, let's throw a coat of paint. It's not dealing with the, the structural issues, the heart issues. And what's particularly dangerous is with this false version of the gospel is it can lead many people to assume that they are on their way to heaven, to think that they have passed through the narrow door when they're really just congregated on the front porch. It can inoculate many people to the gospel. You see, we can assume that our neighbors around us are on their way to heaven because they've got a, you know, a nice sort of Christian plaque on the front door. Or they pop off to church a few times every month. And we don't bother to share the gospel because, well, they're already claim to be a Christian, or even more dangerously, you yourself. You say, yeah, none of the, what Pastor Sam's going to say today applies to me because I'm, I'm good to go, and everything's good, everything's solid. Jesus says entering the kingdom is narrow, and he seems to imply that there are going to be few who make it, and a lot of people showing up on Judgment Day who are surprised when they are not granted access to heaven. That should 
make us very sober. Now, we're going to be having the Lord's Supper at the end of the message. Think of all of the sermon today as preparation, as searching our hearts. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Celebrating the Lord's Supper once a month, as we try to do around here, gives us at least a once a month opportunity to examine our hearts to say, am I, am I really a believer in Jesus Christ? Is there evidence? Is there fruit? Am I relying on Jesus? And that's a good question for us to ask, because if you, you, you examine yourself and you come through the other side, you come out with a stronger assurance that you belong to Jesus. But if there's doubts, it's a good place for the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. So the question we need to ask and answer today is, are you, am I truly converted? That's what Jesus is going to deal with here, and he's going to give us three enemies, three Enemies of genuine conversion. Now, if you're following along in your, in your service guide, there's a place to take notes. If you want to follow along with that, you're more than welcome to do so. Three enemies of saving genuine conversion that we need to be aware of and fight against. The first one I'm going to call this. I'm going to call passivity, or if you like the word, complacency. But the first enemy is, is passivity. Now, notice the man's question in verse 23. Lord, are there few that be saved? So this guy pops up. He's asking Jesus this question. Are there only a few people who are being saved? It's an important, it's a troubling question. It's kind of like the abstract question that gets asked from time to time. Hey, so what about the billions of people who live in the Tibetan plateau who have never heard the name of Jesus? The people out in the Amazon jungle... Are there few who are being saved? If what we're saying about Christianity is true, then that raises some troubling questions about the many, many millions and billions of people around the world and throughout history who've not heard the gospel. What about all those people who profess to follow God, but if what Jesus has been teaching is true, maybe this guy's been listening in about repentance and the tree needs to have fruit on it and no hypocrisy and judgment day. If all this is true... There's a troubling implication that only a few people are being saved. But I think there's something else going on in the question. You see, in first century Judaism, there was a common belief that went something like this. All Jews go to heaven. Now, Gentiles, they'll be shut out unless they become proselytes and convert to Judaism. And unless a Jewish person is really, really bad, they go become a tax collector or something like that. All all Jews will go to heaven just by virtue of being Abraham's children. The Mishnah, which is a comp- compilation of, of sort of Jewish oral tradition, put it bluntly, all Israelites shall have a share in the world to come. That was the common belief. So the question here is sort of an abstract theological question of their fewer saved. He's expecting Jesus to say, well, all y'all, if you're sons of Abraham, you guys are fine. You're going to enter into the world to come. You'll enjoy the kingdom. Now think about it. If you have that mentality that says, well, you know, I was born into a Christian home, so therefore I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian nation, therefore... I'm a Christian by virtue of where I live or who my family is. That's going to breed passivity. You're not going to seek after salvation if you think you already have it. So complacency, passivity, I think is one of Satan's chief means of keeping people from Christ. There is no better way of keeping people from salvation than convincing them that they don't need it or they already have it. That's what's behind this question of there are few who are saved. All Jews go to heaven, right? That's the same issue that uh, John the Baptist faced. Remember back in in Luke chapter 3? He says, begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. 
Don't say, well, mom and dad were Christians or grandma was a Christian or I had a good heritage, therefore I'm on, the, on my way to heaven or as a kid such and such happened or I was baptized as an infant or that's complacency, it's passivity. Sometimes it's complacency. Passivity is bred from just the distractions of modern life. Sometimes it's bred from just Discussing eternal questions is abstract questions. Notice the guy's question. He doesn't say, Lord, do you think I am saved? He says, are there a few who are saved? He's asking sort of like, hey, let's have an interesting question here. What about the people out in the Amazon jungle we've never heard? Rather than treating this as an urgent question, it's treated as kind of an interesting triviality, kind of like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin sort of question. It's a good way to deflect questions about my own heart and about my own eternity and asking, where will I spend eternity? It's easier to say, well, what about the three wise men? Or what about this? Or what about Jonah and the the whale? Let's ask her to go off on this theological rabbit trail. We can do that. Do you find yourself, when when questions, uncomfortable questions about your spiritual condition come up, maybe even you know you're saved, but just about how your, your spiritual health is, you say, well, you know, look at how these people over here do their music, or let's have a discussion here about predestination, or what. Okay, the issue is your soul before God. It's so easy to deflect and deal with other things. You see, in our day, we have media overload. Okay, all of us have this very, very powerful and dangerous thing in our pockets. More computing power in your little smartphone than in the Apollo mission that put man on the moon. And this here is an amazing tool for good and an incredible distraction. And we can numb our minds to great spiritual questions, just mindless scrolling, right? So, you know, I go off on a walk every morning to try and just get out and pray. Some mornings I just leave my phone at home. Sometimes I have it with me just so, like, hey, if Rachel's wondering where I'm at or needs to get hold of me. And I find, like, my prayer time is much less focused when, like, the smartphone's around. You know, I check email or a text came in. or this, And just can numb us to, 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 to being alone with our thoughts and our standing before God. Considering this question, are there few who are saved, am I, am I saved, requires not just sort of frenzied distraction and little tidbits of time, but it requires, like, okay, real soul-searching questions. Like we have this opportunity right now. Now, Jesus' answer, he doesn't answer the question directly. The guy had kind of asked an abstract question. Are there few who are saved? And Jesus could say, yes, there are few. But notice what he does is he turns around and addresses the guy directly. Strives to enter into the straight gate. That's a second person. He takes a third person question. What about them? And says, what about you? Don't ask it about all of them, but ask it about you. The guy says, are there few who are saved? And Jesus says, are you saved? He doesn't answer the question. He answers the questioner. You see how he does that? He turns it around and be like, hey, look at your own soul, buddy. He doesn't respond in the third person, but in the second. He doesn't speak in the indicative. Well, here's what is going on, but he speaks in the imperative. He goes right for the heart. So the question, quite simply, is not will the saved be few, but will the saved be you? Are you saved? Are, are you right with God? Is your soul secure? Can you, that what we sang this morning, can that come from your heart as, yes, I can stand with confidence before his throne, and it's a joy to say, Jesus is my high priest who welcomes me into God's presence? Or does that seem kind of some abstract, yeah, that's a nice old hymns and poetic language? Or is that real? Jesus' call is urgent. Strive. 
Agonizomai is the word. You hear the word sort of agonize that we get from that. It was often used as an athletic term where you're, 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 you're running with all of your might to try and cross the finish line. It could be used in a, in, a, in a combat setting where you're exerting all of your strength. Quite simply, Jesus is saying, this is do or die. Be striving with all of your might to settle the question of your salvation. By the way, it's not just, hey, you as an individual, but this is a you plural. This is an all y'all kind of statement in the, in the original. Uh, not just the guy who's asking the question, but hey, anyone who's listening, make sure that your soul is right with God. Strive to enter in at the narrow gate, at the straight gate. Jesus is saying, settling this question is going to require intensity and effort and utmost attention. Now, those of you who are sort of theologically minded, you're like, man, I've, I've got a question here that's come up. Isn't salvation by grace through faith? Isn't it a, a gift? that we just receive by faith. How does receiving a gift and strive with all of your might, how are these not contradictory ideas? Now, Jesus is not teaching salvation by exertion. He's not saying, if you just try hard enough, then you might just make it. He's not teaching salvation by exertion. You see, no amount of exertion or effort can erase the sin that is in our hearts. We sing uh, in Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These four sin could not atone. So it's not that, well, if I do enough exertion, that'll kind of erase my sin. And exertion, sin, no, he's not teaching that. He's not teaching atonement by human effort. Otherwise, why did he have to die? No amount of struggle can repay the unpayable debt of sin. The New Testament is abundantly clear that forgiveness is a result of pure grace through faith. What Jesus is touching on, however, is the nature of that faith. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We have this easy believism, like one, two, three, repeat after me. Boom, you're on your way to heaven. Saving faith in the New Testament is always wed to repentance. It is always wed to entering into a life of discipleship and following Jesus. Saving faith requires a humble acknowledgement of sin. And guess what? Nothing is harder for sinners than acknowledging their sin. Right? We can do it in sort of a prideful way. Oh, look how bad I am. But I mean, in, a, in acknowledging it as God sees it and confessing it uh, to God, confessing my inability and my, uh, my, uh, my, uh, my complete helplessness to save myself, that's, that is an impossible task to ask a sinner. Sinners cannot do that apart from God's grace. The Bible's demand for repentance and reliance on Jesus alone, on one hand, is paradoxically I can't do it myself, and it's, a, it's all God's grace and kindness. And then on the other hand, it is impossible. Listen to how Jesus words it in, in just over a few pages in Luke 18. Just flip over to Luke 18. This is the story of the rich young ruler. And he comes and is like, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the law of God. Why? To show him, look, here's God's standard, and you fall short. You need forgiveness. The guy's coming in not recognizing his sin. In verse 24, Jesus when he saw that the rich man, young ruler left sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, just quick pause. There was a common assumption in the first century that rich people were closer to God than poor people. God, you know, riches are God's blessing. God blesses good people. Therefore, if you're rich, you're good people. And so the disciples are like, Hang on, if the rich guy who is ostensibly closer to God than we are 
can't get to heaven. He's, it's like a camel, like a full camel going through the eye of a needle. It's not some gate or what. No, like an actual literal, literal eye of a needle. We're talking about absurd impossibility. They come to the conclusion, verse 26, they that heard it said, who then can be saved? Like, if that's the standard, if salvation is that impossible, then nobody can be saved. And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Listen, salvation is a gift of God precisely because it is humanly impossible. It requires that we squeeze through a narrow door. It requires a camel to somehow fit through the eye of a needle. So back to our text in Luke 13. Jesus says, strive to enter through the, the straight gate. Now, straight doesn't mean like straight, but straight as a narrow, like straight jacket kind of idea. Through, through a narrow door, you're trying to squeeze through a, a tight entrance. What is Jesus referring to? He's referring to the call of repentance. Earlier in the chapter, look at verse 3 of Luke 13. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's the doorway into the kingdom, is the doorway of repentance and humble faith. Turning from my sin to trust in Christ and Christ alone. Now, the picture Jesus has is a little different than the familiar passage. We, you know, we know Matthew 7, there's a narrow gate and then there's a narrow way. Here, the, the picture is a little different. It's a narrow doorway into a banquet hall. We know that because in the next verse, he talks about the master of the house rising up, and then he talks about the banquet of the kingdom that you know, Abraham and Isaac will sit down at this, this great feast. So picture, picture a, a wedding reception, right? And you've got to have an invitation to come to the wedding reception. It's RSVP only. And there's one doorway in, and it's like, hey, everyone's got to be seated by a certain time, and then we're, then we're closing the doors. Like, gate crashers are not welcome at this particular wedding. There's one way in, there's one way out. There's not some other back way. There's a, there's a single entrance but this particular entrance is narrow, and you've got to kind of squeeze through. You, there's not space to bring all your stuff with you. In the same way, entrance into salvation is narrow. It requires you and me to drop literally everything and to cling to Christ alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We just sang that a minute ago. That's the idea. We've got to drop our sin, our self-reliance, our self-love, our self-righteousness. And there's only one way, and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and, our, and the life. We live in a day where, you know, the idea of pluralism, that, hey, there's, there, we tolerate many religions, we have religious freedom in our country, I think that's a good social, you know, good social good. But that can become a very poisonous theological mindset where we go from, okay, we tolerate other religions, we shouldn't be killing people because of what they believe, becomes, hey, all truth claims are now equally valid. Who am I to say that the sincere Muslim isn't on his way to heaven? That's a mentality so many people have. They'll say, well, I'm not one to judge. I just think for me personally, Jesus is the way. No, Jesus is objectively the only way. Which that should be troubling. If Jesus is the only way, those who are on other ways are, on, are not on their way to God. The way to heaven is not like the interstate highway system, right? You get down there to the junction of 10 and 65. There's an exit you can take to go north, and there's like these bridges coming over, and then you can get off at Dauphin Island Parkway. It's not this road with many, many lanes and exits and on-ramps, and you can kind of get on where you want and get off where you want. No, the way to heaven is a narrow door. One way. Now, notice Jesus does not say stroll in when you get a chance. Like, hey, it's wide open. Just, you know, when you think about it, 
I'm here. Come on in. He says, strive. Do it now. Not, not passivity, being like, well, we'll just kind of wait and see what happens on Judgment Day. Is now urgency. Strive to enter that narrow gate. Because then he says, why? Because many will seek to enter and shall not be able. Now he's sort of answering the question. The question is about few. And he says, guess what? Yeah, it's few who are saved because the many will wait until it's too late. Notice we switch to the future tense at the end of verse 24. Many will in the future seek to enter it. The moment of opportunity they'll let pass by and they will not be able to. Listen, there are many, many millions of people sitting in church pews this morning, perhaps even standing behind pulpits this morning, that are standing out on the front porch but have not walked through the door. Now, they think they have. They think that being on the porch is pretty much the same thing. Judgment Day is going to come, and they'll say, oh, I want to go through the door now. And Jesus says it will be too late. Passive. Question, are you passive about your spiritual life? One of the ways you know that you have passed through the narrow door is that there is an urgency and an activeness in your spiritual life. This image of striving if you look up how, how often this is used in the New Testament, it's used more often than not to describe not just entering into the Christian life, but the Christian life itself. So it's not just strive to enter now, I'm in, I can just kind of float by through the Christian life. One of the ways you know that you have repented and believed in Jesus is you continue to repent and believe in Jesus. One of the ways you know that you have turned from your sin is your life is marked by increasingly and continually turning from sin and chasing after Jesus. So, Paul and Barnabas went to Christians, people who believed in Jesus, and they said, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. Whoever wrote Hebrews says, follow after holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If there's not holiness in your life, he's saying you are not saved. That's that's a shocking claim to make. Not to say you're saved by your holiness, but saved people are marked by holiness. It's a serious thing. So are you complacent and passive? Are you more concerned about sports and politics and Facebook debates than you are your walk with Jesus Christ? If you're marked by passivity and complacency in your Christian life, there's a good chance that you don't have a Christian life and you need to turn to Christ. It's a serious question. That's the the first enemy. But let's move into a second one, and we're going to call this one procrastination. Or if you want a simpler word, you're like, I can't remember how to spell that, the word delay. So first enemy is passivity, complacency, just sort of like, yeah, that's an interesting question. Versus, no, you strive. Second is delay. Verse 25, notice the, 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 the time words. When once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence ye are so here's the second great enemy of, of, of true conversion. It's not just passivity. It's procrastination of saying, yeah, that's interesting, but I'll do it later. Um, I'm a bit of a procrastinator on things, right? I, I, I like to put things off to the last minute and then let the panic monster come in and motivate me to just do awesome things. Uh, you know, realize the pastor, you, you know, Friday night sermons or Saturday night sermons, not the way to go. Start early in the week. Getting, getting better at that kind of thing. But you think about this, if you're a procrastinator, by the way, how many of y'all are procrastinators? Okay, so, okay, everybody here, we all put our hands up, we're all procrastinators. Some of you are like, oh, let me do that now, let me procrastinate on raising my hand. Think about what lies behind procrastination. Okay, when I was in college, you write so many papers in college, you realize, oh, three to five research, three to five page research paper. 
that's a uh, two hours the night before it's due kind of. I can knock it out at the last minute and still get it in there. What lies behind that is a sense of cockiness that I can handle this. I don't, I don't even, I, it's, it's pride. Procrastination is rooted in pride that says, I can swing it at the last minute and still skate by it and it'll be fine. Sometimes, though, here's what happens is I'll wait till the last minute to do it, but of course the teacher will give me a pass regardless because I'm very important. That's still rooted in pride. They'll make an exception for me because I delayed. So this delay that's going on is not lack of information, but excess of pride that says, I can wait to turn to Jesus at a future point. I can just kind of come to church and but yeah, the demands of Christianity to take up the cross and follow Jesus, that's not something I want to mess with right now. Other countries, this is much more pronounced. Hey, becoming a Christian is going to be very costly. In our culture, hey, it's kind of a cool thing. Like, we just finished the primary election, and everybody in the primary is like, oh, Christian conservative. And like, yeah, this is great. Other countries, you take the name of Jesus, it can be costly. And so understandably, people will be like, I'm just not quite ready to, 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 to make that step. Jesus is warning against this danger, this enemy of procrastination, of delay. He says, once the master of the house gets up, so here's the image, it's a parable that he's giving, a parable of this door. He says, okay, the, the one who is the master of the house where the banquet is being held, there's a marriage banquet, the wedding reception is being held. So once he gets up and they close the door, the party begins, hey, sorry, latecomers aren't going to be welcomed in. Gate crashers aren't going to be given access. Jesus is saying this, once, at some point the door will be closed, and at that point the door will be locked. It's not going to be a, oh, judgment day, we'll let a few more people in because you, you meant well, you didn't get the memo. The time for turning to Christ is now. The term for time for turning to Christ is now. The, the door, it is narrow, but it is right now open. But it will not forever be open. So when does the door close? It closes whenever the homeowner decides. We like to think that I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. No. The homeowner is the one who decides when, how long the door will stay open. We get this image all wrong. We think that, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and I have the, 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 I'll let Jesus in when I'm ready. It's not what that verse is about. No, rather, Jesus is the one who opens the door. We take advantage of the opportunity when he gives it because it is not guaranteed. He says, you, notice how direct Jesus is. Once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, and you start knocking outside and saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. He says, when that happens, he, and this is Jesus, will say to you, I don't know where you're from. Where, where did you guys come from? I, I don't know you. It's kind of a, remember, the, the assumption here is, oh, I'm a Jew. I get to go to heaven. I don't, I don't know your origin story or where you're from. I don't even know who you are. See, showing up like this, you say, man, that seems kind of harsh that you turn them away. So you, you, you're, you're flying. Um, I'm not a big fan, but, you know, it's a great way to get from A to B, cover large amounts of space in, in a short amount of time. Sometimes you miss a connecting flight. You know, you were delayed on the tarmac getting out of Atlanta, and so then when you get to Houston, your, your flight at Houston's already left. You show up at the gate in Houston. You're like, gate 25B, here I am. And the flight has already backed away from the gate. It's circling down on the tarmac. It does not matter how much you beg and plead to the gate agent. They're not going to open the door for you and be like, yeah, go ahead and chase, chase the plane down the tarmac. Try and wave the pilot down. They're, they're not going to do that. Once the plane is backed away from the gate, the door is closed and it's not opening back up for you. 
Jesus is saying once the door is closed, once your life is over, once judgment day arrives, there's not a do-over. It's appointed to man once to die. And after this, the judgment, we're dealing with matters of eternal, infinite significance here. Now it says that you begin to say, verse 26, We've eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. There's, there's this protest that they raise in the last minute. They say, well, they, they seem sincere, and they, they want to enter the banquet hall. They want to enter heaven. They want to enter the kingdom. But even this is rebellious because they are rejecting the terms that the house owner set. That's rebellion, right? Jesus has said, repentance, faith. Now in this life, you're like, hey, I get that, but I'm going to try my own plan of salvation, which is I'll, I'll try a real good speech on judgment day. Even that itself is rejection of the master and rebellion against him. Listen, the offer of salvation is gracious to anyone who wants it, but it is not limited in duration. Now is the time. Now think about the implications of this. Those neighbors, those co-workers, those friends, those family members that you're thinking, well, I, I know I need to witness to them eventually. You're not guaranteed it eventually, Right? You're not a guaranteed a, 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 when I get around to it, my grandma had this thing on the wall that was called around to it. And I was like, what is that? It was spelled funny. And you're like, oh, this is one of those things you get, and then I'll go do what I need to do. So when I get around to it, I'll go do it. It says, now is the time. Now is the time. Now notice their protest. This is, here's their confession of faith. We've eaten and drunk in thy presence. You've taught in our streets in the Matthew 7 account, which is a slightly different setting, but the same idea. So we've cast out demons. We've taught in your name. We've preached sermons. We've served in the church. We've made the right profession. They call him, yeah, Lord, Lord, open to us. They, they say the right things. They call Jesus Lord. They, they serve in, you know, in ministry. He's talking about the people who actually, in this context, who actually heard him preach. Like, hey, we had meals with Jesus. Maybe he's talking about people who literally ate at the feeding of the 5,000. He literally ate bread and fish that Jesus created out of nothing. And here they are on judgment day, and they're not going to make it into heaven. You've taught in our streets, they've heard Jesus teaching. And he says, verse 27, I don't know where you're from, depart from me, you who work iniquity. Just mere association with Jesus, membership in a church, identification as a Christian, will not cut it on judgment day. Many, many today have a passing familiarity with Jesus. They've listened to sermons. They've learned the basics of Christianity. They've eaten and drunk of the Lord's Supper. And yet we'll still hear on that day, I do not know you. Kenton Hughes wrote this. If attendance in the Lord's house could save a soul, Caiaphas would be in glory. If hearing the word was enough, Herod would be in heaven. It's a stunning statement, right? Jesus says, you don't know me. I, I don't know you. There's not a relationship. So here's the, the burning eternal question. Do you know Christ? And I don't just mean have you prayed the sinner's prayer, but do you have a living, vital relationship with Jesus? Not just I come to church. Not just I think the right things. Not just I sort of vote the right ways. But a real relationship with Christ where you meet him on the pages of scripture. When you sing to him where it is from the heart and there's something there. Do you relate to him as he has revealed himself as the savior, as the Lord, as the king, as the master, as the friend? 
depart from me, you evildoers. There was never a change in heart. There, they were evildoers then, and they were evildoers still on Judgment Day. There was never that change of heart. There was never that turning, that repentance, that new birth. You see, you can be acquainted with Jesus' teaching. You can be associated with his ministry, but not be acquitted by his blood. There's an eternity of difference between being acquainted and being acquitted. So the application, very simply, is do not delay. You say, there, I am not in Christ, and I've been playing this game and faking everybody out. Don't delay. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Hell itself is nothing but truth known to late. You're hearing the truth this morning as best I can. After death, there are no second chances, so are you in Christ? None of us are promised another decade nor another day. You're not guaranteed another month or another minute. So do not delay. The time for entering is now. Give it your decided, focused effort not to, well, think about this and scroll and think about these other things. Maybe If you're not sure, you need to take a day. You say, tomorrow, it's, I don't have to work. I'm turning off the phone. I'm getting my Bible. I'm getting alone with God to, 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 to resolve the issue of my soul. Oh, there's a family barbecue. Listen, this is, there's nothing more important. But let me bring the, the, the final enemy that Jesus addressed as he deals with passivity and procrastination. But the final one we will call presumption. We've brushed up against throughout this, the, uh, the presumption here being the idea that, well, because I'm Jewish, these people said, I'm in. They say, well, because I'm American, I'm in. Or because I'm Baptist, I'm in. Or because I'm this, I'm in. What he shows in verses 28 to 30 is there is this great reversal that happens. The last are first and the first are last. The people who presume themselves to be insiders are actually outside. And those who are indeed outsiders are the one who, ones who make it in. Look at what he says. There. Speaking of the place where, where they are sent, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He is describing hell. The Bible presents hell as a reality. It's marked by weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what does weeping express? It expresses the sorrow and the anguish of eternal conscious torment facing the wrath of the Lamb. It expresses suffering and sorrow. Well, gnashing of teeth expresses what? You grind your teeth. You are angry. You sometimes we get this idea that people in hell are just like, oh man, they, they really wish they could do it over again. Jesus is portraying those who are in hell are gnashing their teeth in anger and rage against God. It's not that there's a sudden change of heart that when you die and go to hell, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I believe in Jesus now. Well, yes, they know the truth, but are still resistant to God even as they face God's wrath. Even in banishment. Those who die without Christ are still hostile to God. That's important for us to understand the justice of God, that those who face his wrath for eternity are for eternity continuing to resist and rage against him. That's what the Bible teaches. You can read Revelation as God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. So he scorched them with the heat of the sun. It's not hell yet. And it says they blasphemed him and would not repent of their evil deeds. That continues on. That heart continues on in eternity. They're angry. Why are they angry? It says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. They're angry because other people are included and they themselves are excluded. They thought they were on the end. Hey, we're Jewish. We're descendants of Abraham. We have the promises and the temple and all of these privileges. 
and we're going to be on the outs. This presumption, this, this, this balloon of presumption will be popped on judgment day. Because there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you realize, oh my, I am on the outside when I thought I was on the inside. See, the people who are banished to hell on judgment day are shocked that that is the verdict. They're not like, yeah, I saw that one coming a million miles away. I was ready for this. They thought, no, I really thought God would let me. This is why we should take this question so seriously. But those who arrive on judgment day and are condemned are shocked to be condemned. They thought they were saved. They thought they were on their way, which tells me this. There are myriads of people, and maybe you are one of them, who are self-deceived. So you'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob became the patriarchs. By the way, they weren't perfect. They're not there because they're perfect. Abraham, like he lies about his wife. Isaac does the same thing. Jacob's a big cheat. Like these guys had major sin, but they trusted Jesus and they walked the path of repentance. And then all the prophets, says you'll see them in the kingdom of God, in the eternal state, in the new Jerusalem, and yourselves being thrust out. And now verse 29, what we see in verse 28 is the insiders these Jews of Jesus' day who thought they were on the in, they're on the outside. But verse 29, we find out that the outsiders are the ones who are on the inside. And they shall come from the east and the west and from the north and from the south. Hey, think about the geography of Palestine. We're talking about all the Gentile nations who do not know God. Jesus is saying, not only will you Jews who don't trust in me be cast out, but these Gentiles who you regard as dogs will be the ones who get in. You'll be weeping and gnashing teeth because they're in and you think you deserve to be there. What grace and kindness we see in verse 29. There's a narrow door that we see. There's an open door that will be closed. But then in a sense, it's like this is an infinitely wide door because there's only one way in. It's open to everyone. It doesn't matter the nation, whether it's the United States or Nepal or Nigeria or Nairobi. It doesn't matter whether it is China or North, uh, North Korea. It doesn't matter if it's North Korea or North Carolina. They shall come from the north and the south and the east and the west. Those who had no connection to God. Those who did not have the Old Testament. We, we who are Gentiles getting included, we don't deserve this, guys. We don't deserve to be included in the family of God. We are strangers from the covenant, and we will get in through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is saying, being a Jew does not guarantee entrance. and Being a Gentile does not prevent it. Faith and faith alone determines who will be admitted to the kingdom of God. So this is kind of adding insult to injury. Not only will you be excluded, but those who you hate and look down on and despise, God in his kindness and his mercy will include them. Jews, Gentiles included. Listen, racial and national distinctions do not matter in the kingdom of God. I'm thankful for the United States of America, Memorial Day, the heritage we have, those who have served our country. Genuinely thankful. We, should, we must thank God for what he has given to us. But in the grand scheme of things, in the kingdom of God, national borders, national flags do not matter. What matters is citizenship in the kingdom of God more than anything else. That, that phrase, notice verse 29, they'll come and sit down in the kingdom of God. The, idea, the, the Greek word there is literally the idea of, to recline. 
well, a big lazy boy chairs. No, the idea of reclining was, is feasting at a banquet. The way they would feast at banquets in Jesus' days, there'd be a little table. Everybody would kind of lay around it. Super relaxed, super intimate kind of meal. This is not a everybody get your food and go sit in a corner. But reclining around a table, luxuriating in this joyous, sumptuous banquet that's been provided by another. He's describing eternity as this great banquet full of joy, full of happiness. People there, even though there's only few who are saved, it's not the grim few who are like, man, we barely made it. No, it's the happy, joyous few made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue who are there. Verse 30, there are some who are last, which will be first, and first who are last. Those who are first in their privileges, think the Jews, and they, you know, they get Jesus coming to them, and they have the law. There's many of those who will be last, they'll be excluded, and many who are last, Gentiles and pagans who know nothing of God, who will be first. He said, in other words, if you say the first or last, the last or first, the ground at the foot of the cross is equal, right? There, there's nobody who's got closer access to God because, well, because I'm a man, or because I'm a woman, or because I'm black, or because I'm white, or because of any of these you know, intersectional hierarchies that people want to have today. The ground at the foot of the cross is equal. We come as sinners, we can leave forgiven. This great reversal. So the question I want us to ask before we go to the table, have you passed through the narrow door? Are you in Christ? And I don't want you to just flippantly answer that and say, oh, I've always said yes to that question. But actually search your heart. Do you die to yourself to follow Christ? If anyone's going to come after me, take up the cross and follow me. You're saying no to things you want so you can say yes to Christ. Are you actively in your daily life, as best you know how, pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Do you increasingly love your brothers and sisters in Christ in such a way that you're willing to lay down your preferences and even your life? Like, let me put it this way. Do you come to church to have your preferences met, or do you come to church to serve other people? Is your life increasingly, progressively marked by the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That you say, yes, in my life, not perfectly, but in a growing kind of way. Is your life marked by regularly confessing sin? What I'm describing when I say repentance is not sinlessness. We're, we are going to sin to the day we die, but sinning less and taking sin increasingly seriously. Are you growing in your love for Christ? Go through more diagnostic questions, but examine yourself whether you're in the faith. Coming to the table, Paul says, don't, don't partake unworthily. Now, don't ever think that we become worthy of the table, of what Christ has done for us. Like, oh, now I've done enough, so now I am worthy. The only worthiness we bring is recognizing our unworthiness, saying, I'm a sinner, and Jesus died for me. That's the one and only way to be able to come to, come to God and to be able to come to the table. If, you, if you're unsure of the condition of your soul, as the elements are passed out, let them go by. Okay, this is a, a family banquet is what, the, is what the, the Lord's Supper is. And if you're not a member of the family of God, and you don't have to be a member of Cloverleaf Baptist Church, but you're not part of the family of God, it's a mockery to partake of the elements. As a Christian, you say, yes, I genuinely have passed through the narrow door, but, man, there are some areas in my life where passivity has begun to creep back in. 
procrastinating what I ought to be doing spiritually or confessing with sin or dealing with some issue, I keep putting off. Or there's just presumption and pride in my heart that I've got to to seriously deal with. It is better to let the elements pass than to incur judgment on yourself by eating and by drinking in a way that that mocks, mocks those elements. One thing I've not spent much time on today is what this all represents. The elements represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to Jerusalem in our text. He could die for your sins and my sins. Think of it. The the, the door, according to Hebrews 10, which we started our service with, is the new and living way through the body of Christ, his body that was torn open on the cross, is the doorway that is torn open for you and me. The veil that was torn to welcome sinners into the Holy of Holies points to the body of Jesus that was ripped open for you and me. That's an amazing, gory, horrifying, glorious picture. Shed blood. To wash away our sins. Our hearts have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. So entering into the kingdom is not simply a matter of decision. It's a matter of the finished work of Jesus, what he has done on the cross for us. So what are we doing here as we come to the table? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, we, we remember. right? We're remembering his death, his burial, his resurrection for, for, for us. We're remembering the fact that our sins are forgiven through his name. It's Memorial Day weekend, right? We're remembering the sacrifice of people who've died for our freedom. But the Lord's table, more than anything else, is a memorial. Right? As we commune with Christ. And what we are saying when we eat the element, when we drink the juice, is this. We're saying, I have received Jesus by faith. It's personal. No one else can eat that for you and you get the benefit, right? That's just not how it works. I personally have eaten and drunk Christ. I have personally received him by faith and my sins are forgiven. And I'm declaring to the world that that is true of me. So let's bow together for just a time of confession, self-examination, before we come to the table together.